This morning we're we're uh, continuing through uh, the book of the Revelation and um, particularly the letters that Jesus writes uh, to or has John write for him to the seven churches. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 3, last book of the Bible, um, third chapter. And we're going to be talking about um, a, a church in a city. Um, the city is called Sardane, um, but in English we, we call it Sard- Sardis for the simple reason that we don't want to confuse it with smelly fish. Um, and so, so we, call it, uh, we call it Sardis. Um, but this is a city um, inland. Uh, in Asia Minor, uh, on the it's not on the coast of what is today Turkey, um, but rather it's it's pretty much in in inland. It's probably about got to convert it to miles. Um, 75 kilometers is what about 50 miles. Um, so it's about 75 kilometers in, about 50 miles in inland from uh, from the coast, and it is actually the farthest city from Ephesus. So if you if you have been with us every couple of weeks, we put a map uh, in the bulletin and it shows how you would make a circuit. You would start in the city of Ephesus and work your way around the cities, the seven cities, lining ending up in Laodicea and then taking a cross-country trip back to um, to Ephesus. So it's kind of inland and it has a significance um, as as we move through. But we want to read the letter um, and then we'll we'll get some of the context and and some of the things that are going on with it. Um, But Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete or your works finished um, in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father, and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we turn our attention to your word, and as we strive to understand what it is that you have to say, not just to this ancient church, but to the church in our modern day, help us to hear what your Spirit speaks. Help us to know Um, what it is that you would have us to take away from this um, that would draw us closer to the head of our church, Jesus Christ. And as he speaks to them, and as he spoke to them, let us hear him as he speaks to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sardis is an interesting uh, town. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that I've mentioned that that the book of Revel, of the Revelation um, is not a complicated book. The problem and the reason that sometimes it's hard to understand is that so many of the the allusions and references and what we would call pop references that are made in the book um, don't make any sense to us because we don't live in that world anymore. Um, and Sardis is is a perfect example of that issue. Um, and I, I want to share a little bit about 
about Sardis and what it was known for because Jesus cues in on the identity of each one of these seven cities, what they were known for and what they did, and he uses it as a, as a launching point, as a common point um, to, to speak to them and to encourage them in their growth. Um, when, when we think of the ancient world, uh, we have a tendency to think of ancient Greece. We actually tend to think of what's called late antiquity. Um, which is the period from uh, about the time of Alexander the Great, which is about 300 BC, uh, until the fall of the Roman Empire, about 400 AD. So this this time period, we have a tendency to think of that. That's the period with you know um, you know the white togas and the you know the the wreaths around their heads and all that stuff. And we think of that as the ancient world. That's actually the tail end of the ancient world. There's a, uh, thousands of years of history before that. Um, and one of the things that the ancient world invented, one of the things that was invented that changed the ancient world and brought about late antiquity was money. Now you and I go, well, I mean, somebody had to think up this idea of money pretty early on in their lives, right? Um, but the reality was that in order to have a currency, in order to have money, you have to have a standard. Um, in our country, we have a unique standard that we just trust the government. Um, that's actually what our money is about. Uh, it used to be that American currency was tied to an actual amount of real money, um, and the money was considered, our paper currency was considered a promissory note. That if you had a, a, a dollar, it was worth, you could go to the bank and say, I want the gold that this is worth, and they would give you gold. They would give you $1 worth of gold. Now, since gold right now is at about I don't know, $1,000 an ounce, you can imagine what $1 of gold would be. The tweezers and like here. Um, you know, but, uh, and our coins used to be made out of actual metal. And today our money doesn't work that way. Our money is actually uh, uh, something like, I don't remember the exact percentage, but something like 75% of the, the money in the American economic system is digital. It doesn't really exist. It's just numbers on a computer moving back and forth. But the invention that changed the ancient world was this idea of a standard money. Well, that invention... Uh, happened in Sardis, uh, in this city, Sardis. See, in the ancient world, you could get gold a couple of different ways. You could mine it, which was very difficult, or you could get what was called alluvial gold. How many of you have ever heard the story of Jason and the Argonauts? What was Jason after? The golden fleece. Well, this is Sardis, the region around Sardis is where that idea happened. What they would do in Sardis is that they would put, they would fleece a sheep, all right? And they would take that fleece without cleaning it or anything and they would throw it in the river. And upriver from Sardis, there were, there were gold veins in the mountains, deep in the mountains where the, wa the, the river sprang up. And it, the water is such an amazing, amazing solvent that over time it will wear down mountains. Um, and, and it would wear down this gold and it's called alluvial gold. It's gold that's dissolved in the water, carried by the water of a river. And they would throw these fleeces in the fleeces, fleecem, fleece. Um, they would they would throw them in the river, and the the actual fat that surrounded the hair uh, of the of the the wool um, would attract the gold particles, and those gold particles would collect in the wool, and the wool would literally become golden. And then what you did to separate it is you took it and threw it in a fire, and when you threw it in the fire, the wool burned up, and the gold. Um, would, would glob together, and that's where you got your gold. Well, the problem with that was that um, gold and silver occur together in ores. 
And so every particle of gold was usually about between 35 and 65% silver. Well, those of you who know the difference, those of you who ever tried to offer your wife something silver when she wanted something gold, you know that gold is far more valuable than silver. Hey, I got you a wedding ring. It's stainless steel. Uh, No, no. Um, you know, but gold is, is considered much more valuable. But in the ancient world, they couldn't separate gold from silver. There was no process. And in Sardis, they invented the way to do this. This is fascinating. Um, what they would do is they would take this alluvial gold that they would collect in the wool, they would burn the wool, and they'd have these little pieces of gold, and they would pound them flat into sheets. Then they would take those sheets, they would fill a, a, a pottery kiln, Um, with what they called India earth. It was basically dirt with a a tremendous amount of salt in it. And they would lay the sheets of gold over top of this. Whoever invented this was a genius or just very, very lucky. Um, They would lay the sheets of gold into it. They would close the pottery kiln and they would heat it up to a temperature under the smelting temperature, which means the gold would not turn liquid. And what happens is that when it's heated, the, the gold and silver start to kind of pull apart and silver loves to form compounds with salts. And so what would happen is the silver would actually leach out of the sheets and stick to the salt. And then later on, they could melt that down and get silver out of it. But in the meantime, they went from something that was maybe between 65 and 35% silver to something that was 95% gold. Then they would take those sheets of gold and they would smash them together, smelt them down, and make coins. And the the coins of Sardis were the standard. That was what you wanted to achieve. That was the purity of gold that you wanted to achieve. It was the purest gold in the ancient world. And Sardis was known for this. Um, Now, and you say, what on earth does that have to do with this letter? Trust me, it's coming, all right? Everybody wanted to have that, 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 that gold from Sardis. And not everybody could make it because obviously they protected this technique. And so what people would do is they would counterfeit the sardine coins by using the regular gold. It's called electrum. So if I, if I use the word electrum, that's, a, that's an alloy of gold and silver. Um, and uh, what they would do is they would take electrum and they would stamp coins out of it. And then they would, they would treat the outside surface of that coin. And today our coins are real thin. Ancient coins weren't super thin. All right? They would treat the outside of it so that the outside, just, just molecules thick, the outside was gold. All right? And then they would pass those coins off as being gold. Now, how many of you have ever seen somebody take a piece of gold in the movie and they bite it? Why do they do that? Well, it's to prove that the gold is soft. But also you can see the inside of the coin and see whether it's filled with something else. People coat lead and all kinds of stuff. Um, Well, these these coins from Sardis, they were were about this big. And the counterfeits were the same size and had the same imprint and everything like that. But because they were made of electrum and just kind of coated with gold, as opposed to real coins from Sardis being full solid gold, they were worth a tenth, a fraction of the true coins. Because only Sardis could do this thing. In fact, they had a king named Croesus, and it was an ancient, um, an ancient proverb was as wealthy as Croesus um, because he was this wealthy guy. Well, where does this all tie in? Well, in verse uh, 1, just starting in verse 1, he, Jesus says this, I know your deeds... 
you, ha- you have a reputation or a name. The Greek word hamana, all right? Um, you have a reputation or a name of being alive, but you are dead. Now that word, name or reputation, in ancient Greek has lots of uses, but one of the uses of it was that a merchant or a dealer or a banker, we would call him today, um, who, who worked in Sardinian gold, um, not Sardinian, that's an island Sardinia, um, the gold from Sardis that, that had a reputation for dealing only in pure cur- currency had a name. And you knew that if you got gold from that person, it was genuine. It was alive. It was useful. It was vibrant. It was through and through. It was pure gold. And you could trust the name. You could trust the name. In Greek Greek culture, a name has tremendous significance. Tremendous, tremendous significance. You you can't even comprehend how much significance it has. It, it, It tied down to the fabric and the dignitas and the gravitas of someone. It was... And so if you had that name, the name said that you were useful, you were, you were reliable, you were dependable, that what you presented was the real thing. And Jesus says to the church in Sardis, you have the name of being alive. You've got a reputation, but the problem is you're not. Then he says a curious thing. He says, wake up. And uh, this, it seems like a mixed metaphor, doesn't it? I mean, and, and that's one of the challenges of his letters. It sounds like everything's being mixed up together. He's got names and, and waking up and white garments and all that stuff. Believe it or not, this all ties together. Because what they called the process, what was called salt cementation, um, or what we call salt cementation, not like the Greeks were walking, oh, salt cementation. Um, but um, what, that process of making the gold sheets, of purifying the gold, Guess what they called it? They called it waking up the gold. Purifying that gold. So when he says to them, wake up, what does he mean? He means kindle the fire, purify the church, cleanse out. Now, is silver a bad thing? No. I mean, in the absence of gold, I'll take silver. You know, that's okay. Um, but uh, but it doesn't... It, it, diminishes the cost, or diminishes the value of that coinage. He says, wake up. He said, don't be dead. Wake up. Get that gold pure through and through. Live up to the reputation that I've given you. That's what he's saying. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. You're not all the way through purified. You're not the gold that your name says that you're going to be. And so he says to this ancient church, he says, look, he says, you've got something you need to live up to. There's an expectation from the person who gave you the name to live up to the name. And it's time to wake up. One of the great commandments, one of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, right? Now, most of us, we use that as our kids to never use the name of Jesus wrong. That's not actually what it means. 
You know, Jesus is my name is not a curse word. You know, that's what that means. That's not what that means. That passage is, that commandment is, that as a people, when you say we are the people of the Lord God, that should not be an empty declaration. It should be a filling declaration. It should not be a superficial statement, but it should be a foundational statement. It is not what's on top, it's what's on the bottom. He says that everything should be built up from the declaration that the Lord our God is our God. And the same thing Jesus says here, Jesus says to the church in Sardis, he says, look, you've got this name, but it's time to be purified so that when the surface level is stripped off from where, because what happens to coins? As they're passed along, they start to wear down. And if you've only got a veneer of gold, then when you get to the bottom, people get mad because they've been ripped off. I don't know if you've ever been handed a counterfeit dollar, a counterfeit bill. You know, I mean, I, I personally take it as a personal insult every time somebody making five dollars an hour at McDonald's checks my twenty-dollar bill to make sure it's real. Um, but by the same token, they've got to do it because how much is a counterfeit bill worth? Nothing. It's got to be proven to be true. And things that are worn down, when this gold, when it was worn down, when these coins were worn down, and it was found that inside they weren't solid, well, they were thrown away. What's the point? What's the use of this? It's, it's not what it says that it could be. And I could go through the process of remelting it down and making all this stuff, but, but you know, it's not what it claims to be. It says, remember, in verse 3, remember therefore what you received and heard, obey it and repent. So he says, what is the process of waking up? Now he moves out of the metaphor into the practical terms and he says to them, you know what I'm talking about. He says, so what is the process here? He says, you know what you've heard, uh, obey it and repent. And, and, you know, this is the simplest definition of following Christ, isn't it? You hear of Christ, you hear what he says, you obey it and you repent of doing the other things. That's a simple declaration, a simple statement of integrity as a Christian. Because as a Christian, if we hear what God says, if we hear what Jesus says, and we don't obey it, we have made ourselves hypocrites. Have we not? I mean, to know what Jesus has for us to do and not do it, but to take his name is hypocrisy. My father used to say to me, um, I named you, you know, his, first he gave me a first name, but my, sec, my middle name is his first name. Um, my dad's name is Kirk Douglas DeVitro. My grandmother swore to her dying day he was not named after the actor. I don't believe it. Um, but my name is Eric Kirk DeVitro. He gave me his name. Now, he would have called me um, probably Kirk II or something like that, um, but my mom wanted my name to have the same initials as she she has. It's a long, complicated story. I'll tell, about, tell you later. Um, but... Um, but he gave me my name. And as I grew up as a kid, um, he used to say, I gave you your name, live up to the name. And he used to tell me this story, and it's probably apocryphal, about a criminal that was brought before Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great was going to forgive the man. He was actually a deserter in the story, if I remember correctly. Um, and he says to him, he was going to forgive him. He was going to give him clemency and let him go. And he said to the man, what's your name? And the man stood up and the man said, my name is Alexander. And Alexander the Great comes down from his throne, gets in the guy's face. He says, either change your name or change your ways. My dad used to tell me that story all the time. He said, you carry my name, so you either change your name or you change your ways. The name was important. 
And Jesus says to this church, he says, you know what you've heard, you know what you're supposed to be, obey and repent. That's his definition of being awake. He says, but if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now remember, in the previous churches, he has said to them, you don't want me to come down there. And that's what he's saying to them here. He says, if you don't do this simple thing, if you don't wake up to this simple fact that you, you have my name, you need to be pure in your following. You need to be awake to have that name. Because if you don't, I'll come. The name won't go away, but you will. Um, you know, I mean, my dad used to joke around with his friend uh, Joe Thompson, who had eight children, um, two daughters, six sons, um, and uh, and he used to joke around with Joe. He says, "Well, if one goes wayward, you got spares." Um, and and but that's what Jesus says. Jesus says, "I can always get another church to fulfill my name." And isn't that what happens when we observe over the years of history? That, that as, a, as a church, as a movement, as a, as a thing, starts to abandon and walk away from the name, Jesus is always ready to replace them. I mean, there was a time, um, I have a lot of Methodist friends, there was a time when the United Methodist Churches, the churches of the Methodist Church, stood for the preaching of the gospel, and there are still many. But by the same token, there are, there's an um, influential movement that drives my friends who love the Bible and love Jesus nuts, who's trying to bring the UMC into this, this kind of crazy do-whatever mentality. Whatever makes people happy, just go ahead and do it. And there was a time when the Methodists were the, the, the most intense followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, they had preachers who would, who would ride around huge areas to share the gospel and to lead churches because they loved the Lord and they wanted to be a part of what He was doing. And there are still some. There are still some. But by the same token, there's an awful lot of influence there. And you know what happened was the Methodists really lost their influence and they were replaced in the 1800s in America as the most influential group of Christians. They were replaced, ironically, by the Baptists who should take the warning um, and make sure that we are also staying true to the name, that we are being pure to the name. Not a criticism, by the way, of any denomination or an advocacy of any other denomination because we're all screwed up sinners. Anyway, um, verse 4, he says, but, but, you have a few names in Sardis, right? That's what he says. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes or their garments. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Now here he uses a different metaphor. He pulls from a different place on this. In ancient Roman society, when you were a candidate for a high office, now again, we look at all the pictures of the ancient world and everybody's wearing white. You know, I mean, have you ever seen a picture of ancient Greece where people were not wearing white togas? Uh, I mean, they're always wearing t white togas. In reality, white cloth is extremely expensive to make. Truly white cloth in the ancient world was extremely expensive to make. 
And what would happen is when you were a candidate for office, um, a high political office in the Roman system, you would take the whitest toga that you had and you would have servants rub chalk into it so that that garment was not just regular white, it was, they called it toga candida, which means white cloth, white cloth. A candidate is actually somebody dressed in white. That's actually the origin of the word candidate. That etymological trivia is for free. Um, but, um, but the, and the toga candida was worn by a candidate for high office and all of his, um, all of his workers, all of the people who were behind him, all of his clients, they would walk through the city wearing the, the toga candida. And there's actually a famous speech delivered by a, a, a Roman politician, nobody cares what his name is and I can't remember it anyway, um, called En Toga Candida, from the white cloth. He, he's going to make this speech. And the image is that the candidate, the, the, the person who stays, that stays pure, they're going to be walking in this white cloth because God has something special for them. They are someone special. They are unique. And he actually points out elsewhere that because he is the one in white cloth, that they are the clients. They're the ones who will follow him. He says, you have a few people who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me. He actually says it right there. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will not blot their name out of the book of life. So he identifies um, two segments in Sardis. He identifies a group that needs to wake up, and he identifies a group that is already awake, but they are the minority. And he says to them that they will one day walk with him because he, being the candidate, um, for high office, being the high priest, being the Lord and Savior of all mankind, um, being the, the ruler of the world in the book of the Revelation, that he will walk in white and he will dress them in white as well. Now, we could very easily make that into an argument for, oh, uh, well, see, people who are faithful, Jesus does special and wonderful things for them and he will dress them in white and isn't it blessed? They are so much better than everybody else. That is not what is being said here. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is, wake up and join me. That's what he's saying. Wake up and join me. Wake up, be purified, be consistent all the way through and join me. Because a church that does not go through the process of waking up, and he defines that practically, obey and repent. You know, you have heard, obey, repent. You have heard, obey, repent. But people who do not wake up, in that sense, do not engage, cannot follow him. Well, isn't that harsh? Isn't that mean? To say that, that there might be people who call themselves Christians, there might be people who, who claim to follow Christ who are not following him. Well, it might be harsh, and that's why Jesus said it, not me, and we need to abide by it. We need to realize that the standard of a church is not whether we fit in with culture or not, whether we do what everybody wants to do or not. The standard of the church is not whether we please, the, we are pleasant looking, but the standard of the church is whether we are awake 
purified and following Jesus. That's the standard of a church. When we look over all of these churches and we look at all of the issues that Jesus has with them, you know what? Sardis really gives us the ideal solution to everything. You know what you've heard, obey and repent. You know what you've heard, obey and repent. We make things too complicated. We want to create some kind of system whereby we may achieve something. And the reality is, all that God wants from us on a regular daily basis is that we, we remember what we hear, we obey, and we repent. You say, well, that means I'll have to spend my entire life trying to figure out whether I'm following Jesus or not. Yes. That's exactly what that means. It means that we must daily be comparing ourselves to the gold standard, Jesus Christ, and saying, what do I need to repent of and what do I need to obey? Just like raising children, your expectation for your children should never be that they conform to your expectations, but rather that they understand what God wants them to do and they obey and they repent. There are things that my daughter does that annoy me to no end. Um, she likes Woody Woodpecker. Oh my goodness, nail files to my eyeballs. All right, that it, it drives me crazy. Now some of the shows she watches, I love. I love Phineas and Ferb. I think it's a riot. Um, she watches Jimmy Neutron. I just can't stand that show. Um, she she she. I don't know. I don't know what's up with the kid. She doesn't like the Andy Griffith show, um, which I grew up watching. I love it. She she likes Hogan's Heroes, so there's a plus point. But anyway, um, but but you know what? There are things that she does that annoy me. Yesterday we were watching a movie and she had a rocking chair. We were sitting on the couch and she had this rocking chair and she had her feet on it. You know how children do these kind of things. And she was rocking that rocking chair back and forth with her feet. Well, as she was doing that with those incredibly long legs of hers, um, the rocking chair was slowly migrating to my side of the couch, which meant that the arm of the rocking chair was starting to rub against my leg. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll just scoot over a little bit. Well, then she rocked faster, and the thing started to move over, and finally I'm like, Ariel! Now, the reality was, my response was, I was annoyed, Right? But that's not a matter of, was she doing something wrong? No, she's just being a little girl. And uh, I might have lost my cool a little bit. Um, might have had to repent of that later. But when, you, but when you talk to somebody, when you're dealing with someone, when God is dealing with somebody, what he wants to deal with is not the superficial things. He doesn't care whether you, you look perfect. What he cares about is whether the inside has been awakened and purified. He doesn't care about whether you fall down from time to time and, you're, and you make mistakes because we all do that. That's not what Jesus is going to come down on you about. We live in a world where religion is often defined by how well you can follow the rules and that's not what Jesus is in the business of doing. It's not what he wants from you. What he wants to see is that the inside of you is awakened and that you obey and you repent based on what he tells you. What you see in the Word of God. And he says, when you are in that position, I will robe you in white and you will walk with me. 
He says, I'm going to go out and I'm, I'm going to tell the world that I'm a candidate for the office. In fact, the only legitimate candidate. How many of you have ever heard somebody say that? The only legitimate candidate for the office of Savior of the world. And I want you to walk with me. I want people to identify you with me. I don't care about your flaws. I don't care about your brokenness. All I care about is whether you are awake enough to hear, obey, and repent. And this morning, Jesus doesn't care about whether you're good enough. He doesn't care about whether you live up to everybody else's expectations. He doesn't care about whether you dress right or have the right income or work the right job. He doesn't even care about whether you go to the right church. Some people think that there's only one right church and everybody else gets to watch from the outside. What he cares about is that inside you have been awakened by the Spirit of God and have been fanned and you are being purified by obeying and repenting when you hear his word. Now guys, you have to do that daily. You can't do that once a week on Sunday morning. You can't just say, well, I'll go to Sunday morning, Eric will preach a really great sermon, and I will be fueled. It doesn't work that way. Now, hopefully, Eric will, when all, everything's averaged out, does okay on that. But you can't rely on coming to church once a week and, and picking up something and going, oh, you know, uh, this will carry me through the week, because it won't. Because the only way that that gold was purified was that it was a constant heat, a constant pressure, a constant awakening. You need that every day. Now, now people work different ways. Some people do it in the morning. Some people do it during the day. Some people do it at night. Some people can sit and read their Bibles for hours on end, looking at that page and working through that small print. Others of us, the moment that we look at a written page with small print, for some reason we fall asleep. So get yourself an audio Bible and listen to it in, the, in your car. Listen to it on the CD. Do whatever, but get into the Scriptures and hear Jesus every day. And obey and repent when He speaks. And our job, the elder's job, my job as a teaching pastor, is not to maintain, make sure that you top off your tanks all the time, but to give you the tools and the abilities to be able to understand what Jesus is saying in the Scriptures. To understand it and to grow in it. To equip you to arise and to grow and to be the men and women that God wants you to be. The pastor's job is not to entertain you on Sunday morning, but rather to encourage you and to equip you to go forth as God's people and to walk with Him. And if I could isolate where the problem in Sardis was, probably the biggest problem that occurred in Sardis, and this is a little bit of divine imagination, um, but I think the problem in Sardis was that the leaders were not leading people to do exactly that. That the guys that were supposed to be stoking the fires and keeping people alive and awake instead were content to maintain what they had and just coast and be comfortable and be happy. Hey, you know, not a big deal. We've got the name. But the name without substance is nothing. The name without substance is nothing. And so Jesus says to this church, wake up. You know what you've heard. Obey it and repent. 
And my advice to you as a pastor is to be with Jesus every day. Not, not in some ethereal, oh, Jesus, ohm. All right, but actually reading, engaging with the gospel, with the message of Jesus Christ and the word of God every day. And beginning that with a simple thing and ending it with a simple thing. Here's what I've heard. Jesus, what do I need to obey and what do I need to repent of? How can I continue to be on fire for you? How can I continue to be purified for you? And I guarantee you that if you're willing to let him do that, he will illuminate, he will purify, he will transform. And you will be equipped, and you will grow, and you will arise, and you'll be a better parent, and a better co-worker, and a better elder, and a better usher, and a better mom, a better dad, a better son, a better daughter. Fill in the blank, better this, better that. You will be. You'll be a better Sandy, Mishula, because she laughed at me. Um, but whatever you'll be, you're sitting, the last time you'll sit in the front. Um, <laughs> but you'll, be, you'll be a better follower of Christ. And he will call us to walk with him through the world as he tells the world, hey, by the way, I'm the only candidate for sovereign of the world. Let's pray. Father, we, we do seek to be purified in your hand. Lord, we do seek to be more like you, to be transformed and conformed and renewed and reawakened. And Father, we know in our own humanity, we look at our, our own experience and our own thinking and we think we've got a handle on all this stuff. And so often, um, we, we then realize we really didn't at all. And Father, sometimes we worship the comfort and the ease of our lives and we, we forsake the difficulty and the purification of your work. Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in us. Wake us up in the morning or keep us up at night or give us a break during the lunch hour that we can be focused on what you have for us to say and that we might be awakened by your gospel. That we might be enlivened by your truth. And live our lives transformed by what you say to us as we obey it and repent. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.